Hello and welcome to the Macabre Family Podcast. As always, I am your hostess with all the macabre details, Stephanie. And today I'm all alone, folks. It's just me and I'm all alone. <laughs> um, I want to thank everyone for their patience with the release of this episode. As I said in the Instagram post, we tragically lost my grandfather, Jack, on Thursday. Uh, not this past Thursday, the, a week ago on Thursday. This was very unexpected. We are coping with everything and doing our best to be there for my grandmother, also known as Momore. Uh, they live right down the driveway from us. Um, as we, I, I'm sure we've talked about it before, my mom lives across the street. My grandparents live at the end of the driveway. It's kind of a whole compound. So I wanted to dedicate this episode to my wonderful grandfather, Jack. This actually... Uh, would have been right up his alley. He loves like old westerns and that kind of thing. And if you know about what we're talking about today, then you'll know it's a like a used to be an old mining town. So I think that I could have sat and talked to him for hours about this story. So all right. Um, also, I usually I have a co-host. As I said, I'm all alone today, and my co-host is actually. Would have been Mikhail, but he is actually down helping Momore right now with things around the house, just hanging out with her. He loves spending time down there, and he's been pretty devastated about everything. So he's spending time with his great-grandmother. So this episode is for you, Jackie, and we're going to miss you so much. So I'm going to be telling you a spooky story today, and we're going to be talking about a little town in Colorado called Cripple Creek. Yeah, that's right. Cripple Creek. Before we get into the story, I'm going to cite my sources for the episode. I watched a Ghost Adventures, a Ghost Adventures episode on it. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that because uh, we all know how I feel about Ghost Adventures. Also, OutThereColorado.com, HauntedHouses.com, DenverTerrors.com, and ColoradoEncyclopedia.org. That is that for all my sources. Um, before we get into all the spooky stories about Cripple Creek, we're going to actually learn a little history about the town. Cripple Creek is in Teller County, Colorado. I think it is about 20 miles from Colorado Springs, which is where uh, my favorite detective had had his career. For those of you who are wondering, it's Joe Kenda, the homicide hunter. If you haven't seen his show on the ID channel, I suggest you check it out. He also has a show on Discovery Plus now called American Detective. I just freaking love him. I could listen to him talk all day long. Cripple Creek is the site of the last and one of the greatest mining booms in Colorado history. By last, I mean it was like we all know about, you know, the gold rush and stuff. This was one of the last places that actually had a boom. So in 1873, Ferdinand Hayden, I think I'm saying that right, survey came through the area looking for rich mineral deposits. A geologist from the survey named H.T. Wood had a feeling that there was gold in them there, Hills. It went back in 1874 to look some more. He and a team opened a tunnel into Lone Tree Hill, which is now uh, Raven Hill. They were able to find good samples, but at the time, no one wanted to invest in it, like an unproven mine, because you know you needed investors. You can't just pony up all the money yourself and you can't just go in there with a pickaxe like you know you see in the cartoons and expect to uh, do it all on your own. So you need investors. So they abandoned it and kind of moved on. 
At the same time Wood was moving on from the area, a group of white settlers were moving in. Those guys were Levi Welty, Ben, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Requa, it's R-E-Q-U-A, I don't, I don't think I said that right, and William Womack. These guys started homesteading and ranching in the area that is now Cripple Creek. So ranching and homesteading is kind of just taking land and calling it your own pretty much. We know how the settlers worked, don't we folks? Uh, <clears throat> there are many stories about how Cripple Creek got its name. One of them is that Welty named it because of a bunch of accidents that happened in the area. Another story was that cows kept getting crippled, if you will, from the uneven ground. So, uh, as you know, I'm sure, that if a horse or a cow, back then especially, broke a leg, it would, you know, boom, you have to kill it. The most likely, though, is that the na- it was named by the Womack family after Cripple Creek, Virginia, which is near where they used to live in Kentucky. Whatever you choose to believe, it's up to you. I'd go with the naming after another town kind of thing because you can't go to a town, you know, without a street named Park Street or Main Street. I mean, you name things after other things. That's just pretty much how it goes, right? <laughs> William, William Womack's son, Robert, had a dream of mining and finding gold. In 1886, he filed, I don't know why I said field, filed a gold claim in the area. Since Colorado was in a silver boom, he couldn't find any investors, but that did not stop him. In 1890, he took some of his ore samples to Colorado College to be assessed. It seems that there was gold in the hills of Cripple Creek, and people started to take notice. In early, in early, Early on in 1891, I don't, I typed these up, folks. This is my writing, and I can't even read it. Uh, So, early on in 1891, prospectors started showing up at Broken Box Ranch. 18 claims were made between February and May. That's claims of, you know, gold or whatever. This started at the Cripple Creek Mining District that was organized in April of 1891. Winfield Stratton became the first millionaire in the district when he staked the Independence Mine on July 4th. Clever naming, folks. This began the mining boom in Cripple Creek. By 1894, the town of Cripple Creek was a social economic capital of a large mining district that had over 150 active mines that produced more than $3 million that year. So 150 mines in this area is crazy to me. They're just pulling gold out of everywhere. Uh, The population, oh, sorry. Uh, The railroad came in 1894, so that helped the population grow. And the town was soon at 10,000 in 1896. That's when a tragedy struck. On April 25th, 1896, a fire started in a dance hall on Myers Avenue and then spread to the nearby wooden buildings. You kind of have to remember that, you know, back then, all the buildings were made of wood. And if you think about, like, the westerns you see, there are, all the buildings are wooden, you know. That's just what they had to work with back then. So when a fire starts, it catches literally everything. So... The fire um, took out basically a quarter of the town that left, uh, at this time, 5,000 people homeless and ended up killing six people. That wasn't all, though. 
because on April 29th, what, four days later, another fire started in the kitchen of the Portland Hotel. This fire was more devastating that the first, oh my goodness, I really can't read today. This fire was more devastating than the first. Um, and since they had the first fire four days ago, all the firefighting resources were used up. So fire firefighters started using dynamite on the buildings to stop the fire from spreading. So basically just blowing the buildings and leveling it. After the fires were out, the town was basically flattened. Many people lost their homes and businesses. It cost, it cost, caused almost $2 million in damages. This made the town council ban wood buildings for downtown businesses. Makes sense at the time, right? You cannot, don't, don't use wood again because we don't have to rebuild the town again. So the town rebuilt quickly and before you knew it, there were 170 new businesses under construction. Like, I can't stress enough that this isn't a big place at all. So it goes, you know, the people, the population grows to 10,000. And then it, I think it gets upwards of almost 100,000 in the end, you know, during the gold mine. With all this money and people, of course, there'd be lots of crime and other illicit activity. There were brothels, there were, you know, prostitutes, there was all the, you name it, they had it in this town. Like I said, it was an economic and social place. The gold didn't last, and by 1920, the Colorado Springs and the Cripple Creek District Railroad stopped running, and more than half of the mines were closed down. There was a resurgence in 1935, and production hit $3.5 million. But during World War II, the government shut down all gold mining. Not really sure why, but they shut it down. Many of the mines never reopened again. Residents either left completely or only came back to, the, like in the summer, so they would left their houses and turned them into summer homes. By 1950, the population of Cripple Creek dropped to under 2,000. And so, like, that's a stark difference from the, the height of the boom where there's thousands and thousands and thousands. And like I said, 170 businesses, and now there's, you know, in the 50s, there's only 2,000 people. In the town I live in, I think there's a, a little over six. So it's, it's crazy to think. It went from a mining town to tourism to keep it alive. So it went from, you know, having 150 mines running to having tourists come in, like, look at these mines. And, like, they did mine tours and stuff like that just to keep it going. In 1961, Cripple Creek was named a National Historic Landmark. In order to get more revenue and stay afloat, they started limited stakes gambling, which is, like, slot machines, stuff like that. And this is where we are today. We have now reached the current time in Cripple Creek, and that means it's time for ghost stories and the spooky. So before we get way into the spooky, I just want to say, like, I find ghost towns, I mean, I guess it's technically not a ghost town, but it's just, I find towns like this really, really fascinating. When you think of the Old West, like, Colorado isn't, what I think of, you know, air, like old mining, where all the sand and desert is and stuff. Because of all the old westerns I've seen, it's all been like just built in a sandy area. To think of these mining towns being in Colorado is kind of neat. When I traveled across country with my sister, 
oh my gosh, maybe 10 years ago now, we went through the Rockies and you do see these kind of little towns with these wooden buildings. Obviously, like I said, they banned these wooden buildings being built back then, but that's just one little town. They do have these towns in Colorado with the, the wooden buildings and just old historical Western towns. And I just, I think they're so cool. Uh, so we're going to jump right into the spooky stuff, I guess, because that's why we're all here. <laughs> Due to the history of Cripple Creek, you can imagine that there would be lots of ghostly activity. Before it was Cripple Creek, it was a place for the Utes as a summer hunting ground. So the Native Americans, they used this area as a summer hunting ground for you know, bison and all that fun stuff. And as we know, when it came to homesteading and settlers, the land was mostly stolen from the Native Americans. Sometimes this caused a fight, sometimes it didn't. I'm not 100% sure when it came to set the settling of Cripple Creek, if there's any skirmishes or any problems, but you can imagine. Um, we're going to talk about a few haunted places in the creek, but we won't be going over every single one because there is a lot. Cripple Creek is considered a very haunted place the first place we're going to be talking about is the palace hotel the palace hotel was originally a wooden structure built to be the town's pharmacy the words palace pharmacy can still be seen on two of the doors to this day in 1892 it expanded to be a hotel since the stagecoach started to stop at cripple creek when the gold came about when the the fire of 1896 happened the original building burnt down the new building of the Palace Hotel was built to attract the gold barons of the time. It was a three-story brick building with fancy brickwork and details all along the roof line. There were burgundy highlights around the windows and the main door. Above the entrance, there was gold detailing as well. The first floor bricks were are turquoise and burgundy. I mean, when you say fancy, this place was fancy. Meant to attract fancy people. Fancy Thinking like top hats and, you know, people sipping tea with their pinky up and having canes and monocles. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of fancy. (laughs) The first floor was used as the lobby for the hotel, a dining room, parlor, and in-house pharmacy. Around 1900, Dr. and Miss Chambers bought the hotel. Dr. Chambers ran the pharmacy while Miss Kitty Chambers ran the hotel. Kitty took really good care of all the guests and added her own special little touches, uh, like doing turning down of the beds for the guests, and she loved candles. She would personally would go around and light them every single night. Sounds like me. I love candles, especially pine ones. <laughs> um, when the gold production slowed down, the hotel started catering to tourists. After only owning the hotel for eight years, Dr. Chambers died in room three in 1908. The hauntings that happen here are based on two people who we many believe is Miss Kitty and Dr. Chambers. People see an apparition of an old woman, older woman, sorry, not old. <laughs> this ghost, ghost seems to have taken over two rooms, room three and nine. With room nine, she likes to hide all the keys that belong to the room. The staff will find lit candles in round, random spots all over the hotel. They also have seen a woman in a nightgown carrying a candle walking the halls. There has also been stories of guests having their covers turned down for them. People get the feeling of being watched. 
there have also been sightings of a woman looking down over the street from the second floor. Another entity here is a short, stout man. He appears so lifelike that people actually don't realize he isn't a normal person until he just disappears in front of their eyes. This property was eventually sold to Century Casino. Part of the hotel was torn down to make a parking lot. The rest of the building was saved from the wrecking ball, though, because of the local historical society. It sits empty right now and is said to be gut- will be gutted and used for offices, which is kind of a pity, but, you know, what are you going to do? I'm interested to see how much activity will kick up, though, because they say when you do construction and you change things, it tends to make things start happening. So I wouldn't be surprised if this place starts getting more activity. And hopefully the new owners like candles because Miss Kitty will light them for you. Next on our list, we have the Imperial Hotel and Restaurant. The Imperial Hotel is a three-story brick building. During the reconstruction of Cripple Creek after the fires, the Collins Hotel was built in an annex to help house the many people that were left homeless after the fires. So, basically all the town, you know, was left homeless, so they were building and helping out where they could. Around 1900, the name changed to the New Collins Hotel. George Long, who was an architect and painter, um, when he was younger, he ended up leaving England and came to Denver. Um, he left England because he was considered an embarrassment to his family because he was deaf, which is wild to me. So he left England and came all the way to Denver, Colorado. Uh, he had extended family there, and that's why I believe he came there. While he was there, he fell in love and married a woman named Ursula. But they were shunned and had to leave Denver because of the marriage. They were cousins, not just second or third or once removed. They were first cousins. So you can, you know, even though it wasn't illegal at the time, it still was looked down upon. They ended up moving to Cripple Creek in 1905. When they moved here, George began to manage the New Collins Hotel and eventually they came to own it. They changed the name to the Imperial Hotel. The Imperial Hotel came to be one of the finest hotels in the area. George and Ursula had two children while they owned the hotel. The family lived in a large apartment type large large apartment type large room. So like a big studio type room next to the lobby. One of the Long's children's uh, had mental issues and it is said because of be- her parents being first cousins and her name was Alice. The older she got, the more her temper grew and the more she would have outbursts. So instead of sending her to a mental hospital, the family kept her locked up. So when she had outbursts, she was locked into a room, their apartment there. George and Ursula owned the hotel until the 1930s. When tragedy struck, which we will get into later, Ursula continued with the help of her son. Ursula ended up adding the Gold Bar Theater to the basement of the hotel, which brought in more revenue. The, um, they had a troop of players come through, and it worked out so well that they ended up staying there for 50 years until they moved over to the Butte Theater. In 1946, Ursula sold the hotel to Stephen Mackin. The apartment where all the families who owned the hotel lived ended up being renovated and turned into the Red Rooster Bar. So when Stephen Mackin and his family bought the hotel, they actually lived in that apartment as well. So like I said, 
With the addition of gambling and slot machines, the name of the hotel was changed to the Imperia Hotel and Casino. In 2010, the hotel was bought by Gary and Winnie Ledford. They fixed it up by changing the 26 rooms into 12 larger rooms, and they had they made theme rooms, so there were western theme rooms, and they added all new amenities and made it all nice and fancy. They added an Italian restaurant and conference center. They owned the hotel until 2018 when it was bought by a large Las Vegas company. It is closed now, but it is said it will be reopened with a fresh new look, but keeping the building historical. Now, back to what I said we would get into later, which is the tragedy that made Ursula own the hotel by herself. Uh, George Long passed away. But he did not die from natural causes, as you can imagine. And there are three versions of to what happened. One is he fell down a slippery set of stairs from the kitchen to the coal area. Another version is that he had help in his fall by the hands of his daughter, Alice. So the next two versions are all based on Alice helping him fall, basically. Um, It is said in one version that she grabbed an iron skillet and waited in the basement for her father to show up. She met him on the stairs, hit him in the head, and he fell down the stairs and died. Another version is she waited on the second floor landing to attack him with a skillet and hit him in the head. He fell and died. So none of these are proven truths, but it does you know, make it for a good story, especially with the hauntings. The hauntings are numerous here. It is said a see-through man with a top hat is sometimes seen throughout the hotel starting around in the 1950s. In 1980, a director of theater group that did the shows in the Gold Bar Theater said that they saw George watching him them rehearse as well as seeing him standing behind the bar. George is said to have ramped up his activity when the hotel added slot machines See, like apparently he didn't like it. He would make the slot machines go off. He would also make the jackpots numerous. So that's where you want to go if you're going to do that. Um, he also, in rooms 39 and 42, is said to open and shut doors and turn on the sink faucets to both the rooms. It is also said that when the Red Rooster Bar doors are closed, there can be heard scratching at them, which is where the apartment used to be, like I said before. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about the fire department, police department, theater, and jail. We will be right back with the Macabre Family Podcast. And we are back. So, I have to say, I do not like doing this by myself. I feel weird. I feel like I'm talking to myself, and I feel weird trying to make jokes. (laughs) So, yeah, that's I don't like (laughs) us. So, we're going to get back into... Uh, the spooky stories and we're going to jump in with the Cripple Creek Fire Department. It was founded in 1893 and was considered one of the best in the area. Think area. Area? <laughs> Think about it with like all the mines and the fire risks. They actually needed a really good fire department because they're using dynamite when you're mining and there's lots of stuff that could go wrong. So in the fire department they had a resident spirit um and they call him Jack. He tends to roam all around the department, but is mostly reported in the kitchen and offices. 
On his bad days, he opens all the drawers and cupboards. And on his good days, he actually cleans up the offices, picking up pens and organizing papers. It is funny to me. I mean, it's not funny, but it's like a coincidence that they have a resident spirit called Jack and he kind of likes to hang out in the kitchen. And that's always where you'd find my grandfather, Jackie. He was always in the kitchen. He actually is the one that taught me how to cut um, like fruits and veggies and stuff when you're cooking, how to do it properly so you didn't cut yourself. He's great in the kitchen. He, sh- you know, that's always where you find him. So it's kind of kismet, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> um, the nearby Butte Theater also seems to be the home of Jack as well. He is seen as a full-body apparition walking around the theater. And since we are mentioning it, the Butte Theater also has an entity entity that plays the piano and a male ghost that will tap female pa- that will bother female patrons by tapping them on the shoulders. So next, we're going to talk about the Cripple Creek Police Department. The building that the police department is in now used to be a grocery store on the first floor and a brothel on the second. That to me is hilarious. A police station that you know, it's there now, but the police station used to be a brothel. <laughs> Not funny, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's weird. But with Cripple Creek, I'm sure there are many of these buildings house brothels. So, you know, it is what it is, I guess. You got to have your police department somewhere. The police department has experienced lots of violence, obviously. The greed that came from the gold rush caused murders, assaults, fraud, fraud the hauntings are mostly happening at night according to the night dispatchers chairs will move all by themselves voices can be heard echoing throughout the station and phones will dial themselves also sinks will turn on so the dispatchers will have to get up and go and shut them off one uh, dispatcher named diane pritchard decided that to make sure her nights went smoothly she would make a deal with the entities so she told them like if you don't bother me while I'm working, um, you can stay here. I won't have somebody come in and evict you, you know? And it seems to work. While she's on her shift, she's not bothered at all. But as soon as she leaves, activity ramps up. And, you know, if I was another dispatcher, I'd be like, well, I'm going to do what she does. <laughs> so next we have the jail, which is now a museum. It is called the Outlaws and Lawmen Jail Machine. Machine. Oh, my goodness. I cannot talk today museum <laughs> in 1901 teller county jail was built at the time it was state of the art it housed six inmates to a cell with a chamber pot in each cell so state of the art like i said chamber pot <laughs> so pot for everybody to piss in well one pot for six people the jail operated from 1901 to 1991 so 90 years and the only reason it closed it because it didn't have an exercise yard, which is a requirement in Colorado. The brick detailing that was built on the jail is still there today and shows people what it was like as a jail. It's Like I said, it's a museum, but when you go in there, it's basically a jail. <laughs> Visitors to the museum have heard footsteps walking up and down the wooden staircase in what seems like a cycle. So they'll go up, walk, down, like, and that makes it seem like it's a guard that's still walking their path. A lot of people believe that this could be Rosie, a female jailer. She is sometimes seen in her old sleeping area on the second floor and has communicated with people that she is taking care of her prisoners. A museum caretaker was closing one day and saw a man's face looking through the window. When she opened the door to tell whoever it was that she thought was a patron that they were closed, 
the man just vanished. Not only jailers are seen, but prisoners are seen as well. There have been black masses seen moving about the last two cells of the first floor cell block in the men's section. Near a spot on the catwalk where a prisoner fell to his death, there have been reports of heavy breathing and cold spots. Also, the main security door that separates the jail from the gift shop sometimes flies open with force, like somebody's trying to rush out. Cripple Creek is known as a hotspot of paranormal activity, and this is just a small list. It's pretty neat. I, Like I said before, I find towns like this extremely fascinating and hauntings, especially because you got to think about, I mean, being forced off their land, the those youths causes, you know, disruptions in the universe, if you will. Then the gold mining, which is greed. And it's heavy, heavy greed, too, when the money like that comes in. So that causes more disruption. And then the fighting and the murders and all that fun stuff. That, not fun, but you know what I mean. Stuff that happens when money is involved. All of that creates, it feels like a perfect storm of paranormal activity in this place. Lots of things happen to basically every place on this, in this town. Every, you can, you know, you're walking down the street, you'll probably see a ghost. <laughs> so now, not guaranteed, that's not a macabre family guarantee, but it's just a place like this with so much that's happened and not everything's good, not everything's bad, but it's just a lot, a lot of stuff creates such a, a sandstorm, if you will, of, activity and i can see why this place would be haunted i want to thank everybody for listening today to me make jokes to myself and me laugh at myself <laughs> uh, please follow us on all our social media we are the macabre family podcast on facebook and on tiktok as well macabre family um is on instagram it's just macabre family one word you can shoot us an email at macabre family pod at gmail.com any questions, show ideas, anything you want, just shoot me a email. You can uh, review us now on all listening platforms. Well, not all, but you can give us a review on Spotify and Apple. And that would be amazing if you could do that. Um, and since we're talking about reviews, we got our first bad review um, in January. And I don't, I don't know why, but... Uh, my star rating is down because <laughs> I got a one star review and this person apparently didn't appreciate when I make fun of murderers I guess I this the thing with us here is we are very sincere when it comes to the victims of any true crime we want to make sure their stories are told and we have no qualms about giving a murderer a bunch of shit we make fun of the murderers. We make jokes about it. Literally, our tagline is a comedy true crime podcast. Not tagline, but when you, you make a podcast, let's, let's open the curtain. Um, you choose your genes for it or genres. Sorry. Jeans. Oh, my God. <laughs> genres. And our genre is true crime, comedy, history. You know, because we do a lot of historical stuff, especially when you do the, these uh, paranormal stuff. And comedy, because we make jokes, we laugh, we make fun of these murderers, these evil people, because they don't deserve any respect from us at all. It's a joke. We make jokes about them. We respect the people that get murdered. 
We respect the people of the crime that get hurt in these crimes, and we give the shit to the bad people. That's just what we do. And apparently, you know, so I guess some people don't like that. This is why I'm here, though. I like to give a voice for the victims and make sure that the people that cause these victims harm get shit on. That's just what I do. <laughs> so, I, you know, it, it is what it is, right? You're, I'm going to get bad reviews. I'm going to have people not like it. And that's that's just, you know, it is what it is. I did let it bother me for a minute because I don't like when people don't like me. But I guess I'm getting the wrong you know, hobby, if you will, to have uh, it bother me when people don't like me. But as I'm realizing the older I get, the more I realize that I can't make everybody happy. I'm going to always make fun and degrade killers. That's what this is all about. So fuck that person. (laughs) Sorry that you feel that way, but you can hit stop at any point and move on. I listened to the last podcast on the left who this is where I learned this from. You know, they're hilarious. They're funny. And I guess you could say they're controversial because they do the same thing. They make fun of the murderers. Mount Murders podcast, same idea. There are podcasts that don't do that and are respectful of everyone in the story. But for me and us here at Macabre Family, we don't have respect for murderers. We don't have respect for people that hurt other people. That's just that's just who we are. We are the Macabre Podcast, and we will be back next week with a new episode. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Enjoy the weather wherever you are. In Maine, we're supposed to be getting some snow, I guess, today. I don't know. It's rainy and dreary. But have a great weekend, everyone. I love you. Thank you for supporting me and my family and everything we do. Bye.